Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Talkin' Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. This episode, we are talking about the 1981 horror film The Beyond by Lucio Fulci. Did I pronounce that right? Lucio? No. What did I say? (laughs) Lucio Fulci. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Pardon my Italian. La di la. The Beyond. There's some Italian... And that, that, I'm guessing, is the Italian word for beyond, or the beyond. You know, it's one of those things where I just always took his face value and never bothered to actually check. But, I mean, right. as we discussed a little bit way back when we did our, uh, like, Jalo month years ago, uh, they don't always match up perfectly. <laughs> but I got this phone here, so I can just look that up really quickly. Yeah, La Di La, The Afterlife. Oh. Okay, well, that is kind of a different thing. It really is, yeah. It Although changes the beyond the con- is the afterlife. But suppose, when you say the not... beyond, it kind of, I don't know, it doesn't... It's vague. Ne- yeah, it doesn't necessarily immediately... And when you say afterlife, that has a def- totally different kind of connotation to it. That is true. We're talking about, you know, life after... what What is beyond death? And the beyond is, yeah, it's a little bit more vague. But if you watch the movie, you kind of put that together yourself. Yeah, but I mean, the beyond, it's... It's beyond life, and it's beyond death, but it's also be, it's beyond time, and it's beyond space. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's beyond. Yeah, <laughs> beyond understanding, beyond whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we are talking about the beyond, and uh, hopefully if you're listening to this, you've seen the film. Um, it was pretty easy for me to find. It was on uh, Shudder, which is a streaming service for horror films. I have the uh, the Blu-ray from Grindhouse releasing, and I also have the VHS from Anchor Bay. And if you want to watch the like Americanized version that was released in the '80s as Seven Doors of Death, that's in the public domain, so that's on YouTube. I have never actually seen that. I like sight unseen. I don't recommend it. But I mean, if you've seen the proper cut and you're curious, by all means. You know. That version apparently has a different score than the original, like, Lucio Fulci cut of it. Um, I'm not sure who did it, just some random people with synthesizers. But the actual film, the score was composed by Fabio Frizzi, who uh, we got to meet last week. Yeah, we are talking about this movie in part because we saw the film on Halloween uh in a theater with the composer Fabio Fritzi and his band what was the band called like Fritzi's Fritzi 2 Fulci Fritzi 2 Fulci with uh, the number 2 yeah um so maybe Fritzi Fritzi due Fulci perhaps probably not cuz then it does it's not a pun that way like two right like yeah i don't know <laughs> but um yeah so they played the the whole score while the movie was playing, it was it was accompanied. The movie was billed as the composer's cut, um, which I was curious about going into it because I didn't know if the the movie itself was re-edited or or what that meant. But to my understanding, it looked as though the movie had not been changed at all visually. It was just I think the compo- the the cut it's referring to is an uh, is an audio cut because. 
it was lacking any uh, score actually built into the yeah. mix of the film. And there are moments when we were watching it at Proctor's where the musicians were playing, and then if you watch the actual film, there's no music in some of those scenes. Yeah, they filled in a lot of the uh, the scenes that don't have score. Uh, they they filled it in for the live experience. So this was the first time that I ever seen a movie presented in this way. Uh, had you ever, ever seen anything like that? Um, no. I mean, I, yeah, I've seen you know silent films with musical accompaniment. Yeah, I, the only thing that I that would come close is I guess yeah I saw uh, the silent film Wings with a live organist, which was really cool. Then at Proctor's, in the same room where we saw uh, this event, uh, like every year around Halloween, they have um, this group, the Andrew Alden Ensemble, come and do a live score for a film. Uh, I saw The Lost World there a couple years ago. Last year, I saw uh, Haxon, or Witchcraft Through the Ages. And then I wasn't able to make it to the one they did this year. Uh, which would have been very similar to The Beyond, I think, because they did a live score to Night of the Living Dead, which is, of course, not a silent film. Mm. And uh, I believe what they did with that, though, is they did just remove all the sound, including dialogue, and they just had subtitles while they were playing music along with it. So it was they turned it into a silent film, almost. Basically, yeah. Yeah, huh. yeah this was different because it was like they had a specific sound mix of the movie just without score. So all the sound effects and all the dialogue were there in place. Um, just the the music was just at the f- front and center of the whole thing. Which I thought was really cool. Because if you watch the movie just regularly, the music is kind of buried in the sound mix a bit. Mm-hmm. And like we said, there are a lot of scenes that just don't have score at all. But still have very effective sound design. Yeah. Um, so I was, you know, I, I didn't know what the what the musical experience was really going to be like. Um, if you ever get a chance to see this performance, I, I highly recommend uh, seeking it out. Um, if not, though, there is a DVD available of this cut. Um, like with like this sort it's it's not like a live performance like that we saw, but it's like they recorded a score for it. Uh, and you can go to Beat Records website and... Um, buy the dvd through them of the composer's cut oh i didn't know that they had it on the uh they had a merch table there and that was one of the things they had for sale there but it was cash only so i had limited means <laughs> so there I, I probably wasn't gonna buy that anyway especially before i actually watched it yeah because it's kind of, like there have been a few times where like i'll go to an event to see a movie and then it's like oh and you can buy it too and it's like well let's wait and see what it's like <laughs> right because then I'm out. Then it's like I paid for something I don't like twice. But uh, I think this would be worth it. Probably I think they have it for twenty dollars. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what that would be like. Um, with because I'm guessing it's just a totally newly recorded score, essentially. Yeah, but with the unscored scenes. Yeah, scored, yeah, with like, with, the, with yeah. The, yeah the the basically the the set that they played right for this just like on the movie. Um, so yeah, it was really cool. We did, uh, we did get to actually meet Fabio Fritzi and he was very 
very nice guy you have to pose uh, for pictures yeah we did you know the usual thing <laughs> after of course like you know when, when we were on our way there <laughs> we were like oh did did you bring anything for him to sign or anything because i didn't i didn't even know if there was going to be any sort of autograph situation or whatever well we had, we had vip tickets yeah so. which i didn't even really think about at all until we actually got there and i was like oh yeah these are like vip tickets which included like a so we, we went early and we got to go in during their sound check and uh while they were you know getting everything set up and this included a uh a meet and greet um which allowed for the photo opportunity and stuff so on the way there, I'm like, I don't know, you know, autographs. It's so weird. I never know what to do or say to these people, you know, because it's like, what do you say? You just say the same thing that they hear all the time, which is like, oh, I really I love your work. Or, yeah, I think you're what? I think you're great. I don't know. I don't know. What, what Magnifico. Bravo. Yeah, I don't know. What, <laughs> like, I've got nothing really unless I had like a specific question for somebody that I'm like, oh, I'm going to meet this person. Like, I need to ask them this sometimes that's worse like when i went to monster bash a few years ago there were people there where it's like oh i kind of i want to know this thing but i can't think of a way to like i need to write it down and recite it because i i can't if i try to say it, it's going to come out all like stammering and awkward and then like security is going to come yeah and then you're going to be like essentially chris farley on snl when he's like interviewing people awkwardly yeah like i met ron cheney <laughs> lon cheney jr's grandson Lon Chaney's great-grandson, and I just, I was trying to articulate this thing. I, I just wanted to say something about his face and how, like, this, like the his eyes and the bridge of his nose, like, if you covered up the rest of his face, that part of him, like, you can see, like, the, his family in that part of his face. <laughs> but <it's- laughs> And there was no, I never really perfected a non-creepy way to say it, so I just started stammering at him, like, oh, your face! <laughs> And he, he was a nice guy. He posed for a picture with me, and he was all smiles, but I could I made him uncomfortable. Yeah, that, you know, that's the thing. It's just like, do they really need... Do I, do I need to tell them this, you know? It's cool to be able to to let them know that you that they are appreciated and that their work is appreciated, you know? Yeah. Especially for somebody that you really admire and that, you know, whatever, but... I don't know. I'm not really one for the whole meet and greet autograph thing and you know there's a there's a trend these days that like i mean comic conventions have gotten so huge and there's so many actors and stuff who just go around to like they'll hit every comic-con like they'll hit a comic-con every weekend and you can go and you can like pay money sometimes in the hundreds of dollars to get your photo taken with them and get like an autograph or something and people will line up for hours or whatever to have the opportunity to like you know meet somebody like you know, like Mark Hamill or somebody who for me that would be pretty cool to meet Mark Hamill like I'm a huge yeah. Star Wars fan that'd be awesome but and what would you say to him exactly what do I say to him the same stuff that like you know that anybody's ever said is like oh I you know I grew up watching grew up watching Star Wars like I, you're you're Luke Skywalker I feel I feel like you you wouldn't even you'd you'd spend the whole time in line thinking like everybody else is going to talk about Luke Skywalker. I'm going to talk about uh, Corvette Summer, the Flash. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, was he the Trickster or something on the Flash? Yeah, he's like, the Trickster. <laughs> he's had well, he's had he's he's on the new uh, Flash show. Oh, okay. That's currently as the Trickster, so it's like 
you know, he's had a resurgence of that. So I'm sure there are a lot of people talking to him. About oh, okay, it. then you'd be like, yeah, I guess Corvette Summer would probably be a safe bet. There probably won't be a handful of people. But even that, about like, there's probably tons of people who've made Corvette Summer jokes. It's just I don't know. And so yeah, it would be awesome to like you know meet Mark Hamill or hang out with him or anything. But it's just like to stand in line for who God knows how long and pay like 250 bucks to spend less than a minute standing next to just to stand next to him and have photographic proof that you did. And it's a it's so it's a contrived artificial meeting yeah. situation. I yeah. mean, like just uh, a couple weeks ago or a few weeks ago, I guess, at the Adirondack Film Festival, you just sort of like organically met a couple of filmmakers. Yeah, and that was a very positive experience. It was cool it because wasn't... it was yeah, it was just like oh yeah, you're you know so and so, and I know, and because we were, we just happened to be having to work together on this thing. Yeah, and that's cool, and it's like I that's like a real experience. You know, if I was. I don't know, hanging out in like a diner or something, and all of a sudden Mark Hamill walked in. And he was like, "I need somebody to help me, you know, change my tire." I'd <laughs> be like, "This is the time that you know you're having a real experience yeah. with this person, and like that's cool, you know." Or like if if I'm walking across the street in Terrytown and Misty Monday asks me to go to a diner, and then I just don't go, like I sadly talked about on this a long time ago. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you say no to the. No, I'm good. I'm good. We already met. <laughs> so we. Yeah, my friend Gavin and I, we already ate, but uh, have fun. <laughs> my God. <laughs> uh, yeah, so not to, I, I don't want to put anybody down who, like, you know, who maybe have done, you know, done those sort of photo shoots or, you know, you've, you've maybe put down money to do it. Like, that's totally cool, and I get it, you know. Yeah, and there it's, are both collectors, and there are, are also people who just want to be in the same space as that person. Yeah. And, I mean, it means a lot to them. So how much did it mean to you, Tim, to meet Fabio Frizzi? I don't know. I, I liked it. And I like that he was a very friendly, happy guy. Yeah. He had uh, just a very uh, winning smile and everything. He was, like, joking and stuff. Um, and I bet there have definitely, definitely been situations I've seen where, like, um, in one of those, like, meet-and-greet sort of situations, someone is clearly uncomfortable and they will keep you at arm's length. He, like, when somebody would ask if they get their picture taken, he would pull a chair up next to him and yeah. put his arm around him. He's like, like, of course, see it, see it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't even know if this is all, like... Um, I mean, there are a lot of people who worked in genre cinema o- over the decades who, like, it takes a while for people to get recognized as, like, their contributions and stuff. I mean, even, like... Fulci, who you know directed the Beyond, like it was a while before people were like, "Oh, this guy knew what he was doing." Unfortunately, shortly after people started to realize that he died. Mm. Um, so, like, I really don't know much about uh, Freezy's like personal history and stuff. Maybe this is all new to him. Maybe he's like, "Oh, people have been buying my CDs for years, but this is the first time I'm actually getting to see face to face people who love this music." Yeah. No, I mean, and that's that's like the the positive thing about it is like. I like being able to show appreciation in in that way, in a direct sort of personal way, where you can say like you know, I you know I love your work, and also taking part in two standing ovations during the performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's very cool, um, especially yeah somebody who's like, you had this long career in, in history and uh, but he I mean he's still working today. Yeah, yeah. We saw a short film that. Uh... He did the score for uh, St. Frankenstein, the 
uh, Scooter McRae film. Yeah, all all together, this this Halloween event was uh, it was a packed day with just there's a lot of stuff between going early for the sound check and well, I mean it was funny because we were t- had this whole conversation about autographs going going to there and we're like, yeah, we don't need anything signed. And then we walk into the VIP thing, and they're just handing out free posters. Beautiful posters. Yeah, really nice posters. Um, and on the way in, I saw the poster, and I commented on it. Like, oh, I love that poster. Yeah, and then they're like, oh, you know, here's one. And uh, so we're like, okay, well, I guess if we have the poster, <laughs> and we're going, he's right there, and he's this is why, you know, we're here for this VIP thing. I guess we'll get an autograph, you know? Because <laughs> <laughs> we're just too cool for school. Um, no, but it was very cool. I, I, I definitely... It's it is it is nice to have that. Um, so we yeah got to meet him, photos, autograph, sound check. He played some. Uh, him and his band played some some tracks from uh, from the movie and from some other stuff. And then we took a break. Came back in and we actually saw the whole film uh, with the band through the entire thing. And uh, man, it was really cool. Yeah, really really cool. Um, the music is just awesome. The musicians were just phenomenal. To be able to like, it was just I was so impressed with just how tight the operation was, where it was just like scene changes were like down to like the frame almost. It looked like it was just instantly they were just on from from one scene to the next, from one shot to the next. You know, keeping in time with with the with the changes, and um, it just sounded like as good as any like recording would have been you know it kind of it almost felt like we were sort of like sitting in for like a stage recording session like they were actually scoring the music you know scoring session because we had this big screen up there with the movie playing and uh fabio frisi was sitting facing the screen and facing the band while the rest of the band was facing the audience so he was kind of like composing while he was playing sometimes yeah what did I say? Composing. Composing. Yeah, I meant conducting. So he was conducting the band while he was uh, playing his keyboard and sometimes his uh, guitar. Now, when I've seen like silent films with live accompaniment, um, when it starts out, I'm kind of like going back and forth between looking at the musicians, looking at the screen, and then eventually I'm just looking at the screen. The musicians sort of blend into the darkness. Yeah. This was a very different experience because, yeah. like, I've seen the movie several times before, and like I would get sucked into it. But it was very hard not to just watch the way these musicians were relating to each other throughout. Totally. Yeah, I was very much torn between the going back between the movie and the and the band. And honestly, I probably spent more time watching the band. And mm-hmm. it was partly because I had just watched the movie like the night before, going yeah. to see it again <laughs> at Proctor's. Um, so the movie was like very fresh in my mind. Uh, which I think was a a good way to do it. Honestly, I think uh, I'm glad that I that I watched the movie before going to see it in this experience. Because if you were going in seeing this for the first time this way, I think um, I don't think you would be as sucked into the film itself because you because you are your attention is split. Um. But as an experience, it was just, um, it felt like it was more, it was a celebration and a showcase of the music, you know, 
Yeah. And of the film itself. And it was nice seeing the movie up on a big screen like that. And I like how he would talk about it as like a tribute to his friend Lucho. Yeah. And um and after the movie and after they showed the short there was he they also played like a a suite of like the uh, the the three films in the the so-called like Gates of Hell trilogy. The third one of which House by the Cemetery was he had not composed that score. So yeah, but, what what are the three films for those who may not know? Um City of the Living Dead, which I grew up knowing as The Gates of Hell on VHS, but DVD and Blu-ray, it's just, now it's just City of the Living Dead. Uh, the Beyond, and then House by the Cemetery. And uh, Fabio Frisi did the score for the first two of those films. But then the last one, it was somebody else who, yeah, I can't remember his name, but... Walter something. Walter Rizzotti? Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, but it was cool because as, as he explained during the show, he was like, okay, I'm going to play for what I believe was the first time all three suites yeah, from all three films on, together all in one go. On the, um, the Blu-ray, the three-disc Blu-ray of Manhattan Baby, there's an interview with Freezy. It's about an hour long, and it's intercut with clips of him rehearsing with his band. I didn't recognize all the band members. It's definitely the same bassist. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's the same vocalist, but there were some. I, it might be the same people, but like they would show them with short hair on the Blu-ray, and you know that's like it was shot almost two years ago. <laughs> this person has short hair. This person has long yeah, hair. Yeah, I'm not they great at recognizing. Can't be the same person. <laughs> um, so it could have been the same people, but anyway, in that he actually, towards the end of the interview, and he's talking about like what he's been up to. Um, he mentions that like uh, he's actually been like you know, rehearsing uh, the the music for House by the Cemetery, even though he hadn't written it, and he's hoping to work it into his future live shows. And it was cool. Like, I started, I watched the first half of the interview before we went to Proctor's, and I finished it that night when I got home, mm. and it was this cool little time travel moment. It's like, oh, he did. I can go back and tell him, hey, you do do that yeah. thing you planned on doing. Now, there was some, <laughs> some confusion that we were kind of talking about, because was that... He was sort of making it seem as though this is the only time that he's ever going to play it. But I feel like he was half joking. Like he might have meant like the um, like maybe this tour because he had like what three other dates right in America. Yeah, so maybe like... just this tour. Because he kind of was like laughing while saying that. Yeah. And he also what was the all right? They also they did those three songs as like a sweep. And they did um, a piece from the soundtrack of uh, Cat in the Brain, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. Nightmare Concert. And they also did a piece, like a a new piece, um, that was inspired by an H.P. Lovecraft story called... I bet bet if I looked looked at a list of H.P. Lovecraft stories, I could tell you which one it was. And I, there was a guy in the audience who worked for this record company that I guess is doing the, like the past few years, there's been sort of a resurgence of, uh, you know, kind of like they had like the radio plays in, uh, in days of old, if you will. Um, there's been a lot more of those lately. Uh, is it Cadabra records? I think he was from. And yes. Yep. 
and I guess this was a piece they recorded for a new um, audio version of a Lovecraft tale. I never really got into Lovecraft that much. You? No, I've I've never uh, really. I haven't really tried much. Yeah. But it just it seems like I should. I don't know. Was it? Is the it's the something and the something something door something and a yeah that I was gonna say is it the picture in the house? Is that it right? It could be picture in the house. That's a something and a something. Yeah, that's why I, it it <laughs> stuck out to me. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but it's interesting that uh, this composer was chosen to do uh, the score to like a a Lovecraft tale when um. You know, Lovecraft is often cited as an influence on these films, which are referred to as like the Gates of Hill, Gates of Hell trilogy. Which it's a weird grouping. I've never really been one hundred percent behind this grouping of them as a trilogy. Um, it's because it wasn't intended as a trilogy. No, it just sort of became. It's just that like thematically, of like, oh, like these all kind of fit together. Yeah, because they're kind of about like these gateways to hell essentially yeah. and like i i buy it completely for like city of the living dead and the beyond being connected but house by the cemetery it's like it, it took some convincing as i get it now i kind of yeah sure but it's a very different movie than the other two i would actually more readily throw in uh zombie aka zombie flesh eaters aka zombie due uh, as part of the trilogy, because that would be like, oh, like somebody opened one of the doors of death or the gates of hell or something, and that's why all these people are coming back from the right. dead. Yeah, um, but that. I mean, uh, it did make me think, like, because it is kind of cool. Because in um, the Beyond, part of the thing is this book of uh, what's A- the book? The Book of Abon. Abon, there it is. Yeah, uh, and in it, it talks about like how there are these seven gates to hell. And apparently there's one in Louisiana built or there's this house built over one of these gateways. Yeah. Um, And thinking that like, oh, it's a part of this sort of loose series or whatever. It would be kind of cool if if somebody if if maybe he had thought about it ahead of time as being like. Actually wanting to connect them all together as being like, okay, there are these like seven gateways to hell. And you could have a movie that focuses in and or around each one of these gateways. Have like seven different yeah. films, and they have like you know they could be totally different kinds of movies and what's going on and happening around them. Um, and like in the Beyond, it's like ex- very explicit. Like this is this door yeah. at this place, and in City of the Living Dead, it's like there's a gate of hell in the town of Dunwich. Um, which that's another Lovecraft thing, Dunwich. You right, know, yeah, the Dunwich, Dunwich horror, horror, yeah. And then the Book of Avon could be compared to the Necronomicon. But there is actually, the Book of Avon does appear in some of the writings of, I want to say Clark Ashton Smith. Is that a name of a writer? <laughs> oh, he's a, Avon is a character in one of Smith's stories, The Door to Saturn. Okay, so yeah, The Book of Avon <laughs> is a uh, part of the H.P. Lovecraft lore. And then in The House by the Cemetery, it's... That's one... I love Lucio Fulci. And uh, I rewatch a lot of his movies often. And that House by the Cemetery, 
because I've never been a huge fan of it, and a lot of people are, I go back to it every now and then, like, come on, Tim, get with the game. Like, you, you gotta, like, right. figure out what everybody loves about this movie. And I just, I don't know, something is off about it for me. But I don't really know if it's saying, like, oh, there's a gate of hell in the basement of Dr. Freudstein's house. And they say Freudstein in the movie, but I'm pretty sure if I was listening to the Italian track, it had to be Freudstein. Freud and Frankenstein. It's so, like... Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, like, it does have that, these weird moments of, like, the dead among the living and, like, contact between these two sort of parallel dimensions. But there's no actual blatant, like, gate. Right, like, yeah. And mention, is there a mention of, like, hell, even? Like, I think so. In Hospital Cemetery? Yeah. I I don't believe so. There's, there's, I mean... Spoilers for all three of these films, right off the bat. How about that? Uh, we're going to, you know, we always assume that the movie of the episode you've at least seen. So right. we're going to spoil wanna that. Too, yeah, deep into... But for City of the Living Dead and House by the Cemetery, um, I'm just going to spoil those endings. Uh, like, all, all three movies end with the main characters in a state of limbo, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um... But that's as spoiling, I guess, so, yeah. That's, you know, as far as spoilers go, that's pretty vague. Okay, yeah. They're they're trapped somewhere between life and death. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're dead, but yeah. (laughs) Maybe trapped somewhere between heaven and hell, or wherever you might end up going. Well, I mean, in, in the beyond, I mean, are they really dead? I guess this would be a question. Well, in the, at the we, end of the Beyond, is anybody alive? Yeah, I mean that, that's something we can get into uh, <laughs> a little later. But uh, at yeah. the beginning of the Beyond, is anybody alive? At what point does this sort of like occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge type thing start to happen? They could be dead the whole time. Spoilers for an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. <laughs> I don't know what that is. It's a short story by Ambrose Bierce, um in which uh, I believe it's in the, the American Civil War, a soldier is being uh, hanged, and then, like, right as his neck is about to break, the rope breaks, he falls into a river, swims to the shore, makes it through this creepy forest to get back home, and he finally is reunited with his family, and he's home, and then all of a sudden, his neck breaks, and he's back on that rope, and he, this is just all his dying moment. Um, it's a very short, short story. Uh, but that has been the basis for so many movies that I will not mention a single one <laughs> because it's always a nice little twist. No, yeah. it's often a nice little twist. Yeah. Um, I guess before we get too deep into the beyond, uh, let's talk about Lucio Fulci a little bit more and give a bit of a, an overview of his uh, films and career leading up to the beyond. All right. We'll keep it brief. I know that you probably have a lot to say here because I know that you uh, you've you've actually written written papers on on Fulci. I've written a paper. You've written a paper. Okay. Okay. Like sixty page paper. A sixty page. Yeah. Oh, that's you know there's no small there's no small feat. Well, I think the it had to be like fifty pages, so it could have been longer. I don't know. It was my, it was my senior project when I went to purchase uh, as a cinema studies major. It was a very poorly written paper. It's I it's embarrassing actually. 
So it won't be it won't be shared in in this uh, show in today's uh, show notes. Uh, it will not, and I hate the fact that uh, it's out there and that you can go to the library and read it. I, I hate that. You can go to the library at uh, purchase or any at library. purchase. Not it's not like okay. I was gonna say you what? cannot go to your local library and be like, <laughs> I'm gonna read what Tim Gunn has to say about Lucio Fulci's Jalo films, which that was the the folks. It was called um, the title of it was. Sette Gialli di un Maestro Italiano. And then in parentheses, Lucio Fulci's Giallo films. Because <laughs> I wanted to play on the, the fact that the translations are always actually different than what the right. title is. Hilarious, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> just just what, what a teacher wants to be confused by the title right on the, on the front page. But oh, God, it's my, called different. In- my poor advisor, she... Um, when I was saying, like, oh, here are things that I want to write about for my senior thesis, the main thing I was focused on was, like, oh, I'm going to write a paper about Robert Altman's career in the 1980s. And she's like, perfect. I know a lot about Robert Altman, and it's great. And and then all of a sudden I just woke up one day and was like, no, you know what? Lucio Fulci. And she was not somebody who was who really liked horror films or anything. So you just made life harder on yourself and on her. Yeah, and she hadn't seen any. Like, every time I would hand in, like, different parts of it and stuff, I'd throw in like some old vhs tape like well watch this and then read this and you're giving the teacher homework okay pretty much yeah <laughs> i felt really bad <laughs> but i mean i don't know um so anyway anyway yeah i'm sorry that's so uh lucio fulci well uh what do you want to know i mean i don't know how to do this without <laughs> just going on forever um i guess just an overview of uh his films before before the beyond okay uh he started out as a writer um working primarily in like a you know commercial cinema mainstream cinema his, he considered his mentor to be um i never remember his full name but he would direct under the name steno um and he would just make these you know broad farces and stuff and uh and uh, by the end of the 50s uh fulci made his directorial debut with Eladri, The Thieves, in 1959, which uh, I mistakenly purchased um, from Amazon because it was advertised as uh, all regions, but it's not. So I've just got this DVD that I can't watch, and uh, I no longer have a working region-free DVD player. But anyway. Is that a a horror movie, or is it... That is a comedy. Oh, okay. Um, Like, a lot of his early films. He he worked a lot with uh, Franco and Chi-Chi, who were just... It's it's hard... Comedy doesn't translate well between cultures. Yeah. And, like, you watch some of these, like, Italian comedies, and they're just... You get that, like, oh, okay, I guess this situation could be funny... But it sucks that the actors are like making these really weird faces to convince us that it's funny. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've only ever seen his horror films, so. Yeah, and I mean, he was a professional like genre filmmaker. He worked in all. He did some musicals. Um, I actually really liked uh, Uno Strano Tipo, uh, which unfortunately that DVD had no subtitles. Um, but it, like it, I, I followed it somewhat, and just he has a way of shooting and like using his compositions and editing to tell the story and like the way characters relating to each other. I didn't even really need subtitles for it, and also I mean it's a musical, so like 
you just sit back and listen to some of the songs. Um, he did... It gets hard with some of these when like people know them as different titles. I knew it as Massacre Time, um, which was his first Western he did in 66. Um, but it's, all, it's also known as The Brute and the Beast. Uh, and he did some more comedies. He started to get a little more serious after Massacre Time. That was, it's a very violent film. That's when violence really enters Fulci's filmography. Uh, which increases as he goes. He realizes, hey, this is kind of fun. <laughs> um, or maybe he just got angrier in life. <laughs> that is, he was an angry person. A lot of people did not get along with him. Um, in the late 60s, he wrote the screenplays for a couple of Jalo films. Um, well, what he claimed he wrote the screenplay for the screenplay for one called The Sweet Body of Deborah, which uh, has never actually been confirmed, but he did take credit for it, which he liked to do. Uh, he did do the screenplay for uh, Doppia Face, Double Face, which my DVD is called Liz and Helen, which is a Ricardo Freda giallo. Uh, and then he made Una Salatra. My DVD is called Perversion Story, which is a horrible title. <laughs> Una Salatra means one on top of the other, which is a perfect title for it. It's about... it's. I don't even want to go into it that much. I don't want to go into any of these right, that yeah, much. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's sort of like a, a Jalo version of Vertigo. It even takes place in San Francisco and was shot there. Yeah. Um, and that was like his real foray into the, the Jalo genre, which I think that's his high point, uh, or the Jalo films he did. Um, and around that time, his first wife committed suicide. Um... And it was it was right around the time that he was his next film, uh, Beatrice Chenchi, uh, which he considered his best. Um, that was it was not a well respected it was not a very successful film or that well respected. There were certain critics who loved it, and um, I'm not a huge fan of it. I that's one it's I've tried watching it a few times. I can't really get into it. I don't know. What what kind of a movie is that? It's uh, it's based on a true story. It's like a historical drama. And it sort of has elements of the Jalo, uh, huh. because it's like it. The, the timeline's a bit fragmented. It starts off in the aftermath of like, oh, this great man has been murdered, and then it goes back, and you see uh, these events from all these different characters' perspectives of like what a horrible person he was, and kind of deserved to be murdered. Um, and like, the, it's intercut with this investigation into the murder. It's kind of, one of my issues with it is this is it's kind of hard to follow with everything. Um, like I'm, I think I'm just never right, in the right state of mind for it. So it's an historical drama. Do you think that has anything to do with the reason why he kind of considers it his best? Because it's sort of his like higher art almost. You know, that's possible. Like you, because you know, it's easy to kind of be like, oh, I just make, you know, I just make all this yeah. gory trash, you know. But this was like the one time that I like really made like a real movie but it's still got a lot of violence in there and it's still got some trashy elements or i shouldn't say trashy but exploitative i don't know mm -hmm. and then after that he had lizard and woman's skin which is great don't torture duckling which is his best and that's one and of your all-time <laughs> favorite that's yeah that is one of my that's in my top two at some Favorite point, films. we we should really do that as a whole episode because it's a movie that like 
you hold in such high regard. Yeah. I've seen it and I really enjoyed it. I yeah. thought it was great. But I would like to spend have a longer conversation about it and really sort of dig into it and see <laughs> what it is that you're seeing in this movie that okay. is so great. Yeah, it even it, I remember it came up in our last episode on Earth Scared Stupid for a moment because <laughs> it was like, oh, there's a moment in this that reminds me of Don't Torture. That <laughs> um, uh, and it's and it's a film that like you know isn't really widely uh known at all yeah and that was another one he would always talk about beatrice chenchi and don't torture duckling as being like to him those were his two best films and it was frustrating because those were two films that for like his entire life americans had no way to see them don't torture duckling was 1972 we first saw it over here when anchor bay put it out on video in the late 90s like that's how i first saw it it, it never just... it never had a theatrical release in America. No. Right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's crazy. And it just, I mean, as I go on through his career, you'll see like and the stuff that we did see, it put a whole new spin on the way people thought of Fulci when you saw these earlier films eventually, uh, because like all right, so after Don't Torture Duckling, he had um, the Senator Likes Women, um, aka the Eroticist which is actually a pretty funny movie. Uh, like, Italianness aside, as far as the humor goes. Um, so it's a comedy. Yeah, it's a, it's a political satire. Uh, and then he did... He did White Fang, based on the Jack London story, White Fang, and then Challenge to White Fang. <laughs> um, there were actually a lot of Italian white... Like, that, that movie somehow started, like, this whole... It was, like, all the random movies called Django something in the 60s and 70s. In the mid-70s, after Lucio Fulci put out his Zana Bianca, White Fang, there were all these White Fang movies. But he only did the first sequel, Challenged White Fang. Um, and he did another spaghetti western, uh, Four of the Apocalypse. And... Let's see, there, there are a lot that... Or not a lot, there are a few I haven't seen just because they're hard to find, like... Uh, Dracula in the Provinces, which is a vampire comedy. I don't wow. know how to find that one. <laughs> that sounds interesting. Though. Yeah, there's um, La Pretora, the sister-in-law, which you can watch on YouTube without subtitles. Looks amazing, but I don't... <laughs> so a lot of these films just like have no proper releases at all. Yeah, um, one from that period that does is... Um, now it's mostly known as the psychic. Uh, I knew it as seven notes in black. Sometimes it's also called murder to the tune of seven notes in black. Uh, and the theme for that was by Fabio Frizi and they use it in kill bill. Yeah. And he did another Western silver saddle, which that's another unsubtitled YouTube find. Um, and then you know, at some point he pairs up with, uh, Fab the producer Fabrizio De Angelis and he um, gets this job making what is kind of advertised as a sequel to Dawn of the Dead Zombie Due because Dawn of the Dead was released in Italy as Zombie so then here comes and, Zombie 2 yeah and it, this kick starts like a whole new era for Fulci and like from that point well right after that he does Contraband which is like his mafia film which is that's actually a pretty good one and then after that it's just like he's the horror guy right and he's the gory horror guy yeah 
and he along with Herschel Gordon Lewis, he'll get that title of Godfather of Gore, which I don't really buy, but whatever. Well, because um, Zombie or Zombie Two, um, or in England, Zombie Flesh Eaters. Zombie Flesh Eaters, yeah. It's uh, it's probably. If I had to hazard a guess, I would say it's probably for for the general horror audience. It's probably his most famous film. Certainly for what I will loosely refer to as our generation. Okay. Um, when we were growing up, if you'd heard of Lucio Fulci, you'd heard of Zombie. Right. Yeah. Um. Now it's so much of it is out there, and a lot of like in like more like maybe serious, maybe non-horror-oriented circles. People are talking... In recent years, are starting to talk about Don't Don't Torture a Duckling and just recognizing that for its greatness. And in the late 90s, Quentin Tarantino's Rolling Thunder Pictures reissued the Beyond to theaters. And, you know, it was... That's referred to by many people as his masterpiece. And people will know, oh, the Beyond, yeah. And then maybe they'll find out about Zombie later, which is so weird, because for years, Fulci was the zombie guy. Yeah, that's that's how, that was my first uh, exposure, was Zombie. Um, and it just has one of those, like, posters and one of those images that's so, <laughs> like, shocking when you first see it. And that it's tagline, like... we are going to eat you. <laughs> yeah. There's a moldy, like... <laughs> ancient looking like conquistador zombie looking out from the poster and just says we are going to eat you yeah and it's the kind of like when you see the zombies in zombie it's like it's basically just like oh yeah you know that george romero guy who has those zombies with like blue face paint on like yeah screw those guys these are (laughs) zombies they are like walking maggot filled disgusting putrid corpses and that's the comparison with romero is something that fulci was never really able to shake and it's one of those things where, like, at that time, I'm realizing now I'm referring to something we were talking about before we started recording. But, all right, so this is, <laughs> there's a situation where, like, certain films get compared to other films because they happen to come out around the same time. And Fulci's zombie film definitely was a response to, a financial response to Romero's film, Dawn of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but decades later, if you look at Dawn of the Dead and you look at Zombie... They're so different. Oh, there's yeah. no, very there's, little to yeah. compare. I mean, the thing to compare them to is is just the zombies themselves. It's just the idea of a corpse coming back to life yeah. to attack the living um, or to eat the living or whatever. And even then, like the zombies in, you know, Fulci's zombies, which there are a lot of, uh, you know, like, like in The Beyond, there are zombies yeah. in that. And... They're very different from Romero zombies. Yeah. In the way that they, the, like I was saying, they're just like, they're the disgusting, rotted <laughs> zombies that are just like, you, they just look just awful to look at. Yeah. Um, And they're definitely, they act like post-Night of the Living Dead zombies, but it also harkens back to the tradition of like the voodoo zombies mm-hmm. of like, of prior years um yeah one of the the, in in his film zombie one of the more famous scenes is the uh fight scene with a shark it's a zombie fighting a shark and it's all underwater 
and it's pretty beautiful to actually watch. Yeah, that is definitely the word I was about to use, beautiful. Because of the way that, like, the, the, the movements, the underwater slow movements of, of the zombie with its hair and, and, you know, filth trailing behind it, and the shark, you know, as it's sort of backing away from the shark, it's just like, it's, it really is, like, it's a mesmerizing underwater dance between a zombie and a shark. Yeah, you don't see that kind of stuff in, in Romero. No, no, you do not. <laughs> it's uh, it, and I remember seeing you know that was the first Fulci film that I had seen, and I remember just feeling like it's like it's so much more hardcore, if that's a yeah. correct sort of term to use, than a lot of other films I had seen at the time, because that was one I had seen you know relatively early. Well, as I was getting into my into on my horror journey, as you're watching through horror films, you come to Zombie, and it's like, holy crap. I haven't seen anything like that before. I wish I could remember exactly when I saw I know I, I bought the VHS at Sam Goody. So if I just... I'm sure I could look up how long Sam Goody was in Aviation Mall. And you can kind and of it's like, okay, it's like within sometime there somewhere. between those years, yeah. Um, it was definitely... It was 1999 at the earliest because that's when I had a job and could just buy random movies on my own. But yeah, that was my first Fulci film. So, Zombie comes out after John and Zed, so that's like late 70s. Does that come out 79? 79. Yeah. Uh, and then in, in 80, he does Contraband and Paura nella città di morti viventi. Fear in the City of the Living Dead. I just want to make a note here, because you might be thinking like, oh, Tim is, is reading these off of Wikipedia or IMDb or something, but he's not. I can, I, I you know. If I was, it. I'd probably be pronouncing it more correctly. He's he's pulling up all these Italian names from memory, which is very <laughs> impressive to me. Well, in in the audio commentary for The Beyond, which has David Warbeck and Catriona McCall, the two leads of the film, and is one of the most entertaining audio commentaries you'll ever hear, because they clearly, in preparation for the audio, audio commentary, like maybe went out to dinner and talked about it over... God knows how many drinks. <laughs> Those are always the best commentaries. Catriona <laughs> um, McCall keeps referring to her first Fulci film as Fear. She just keeps saying, oh yeah, when I was working on Fear. Which is so weird because like, it's a movie I always knew because of the VHS title as The Gates of Hell. And today we know it as City of the Living Dead. But the actual Italian to English translation is Fear in the City of the Living Dead. And she was just like abbreviating it, it to Fear. fear. Right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so City of the Living Dead, which definitely outgores zombie. I mean, that's the you've got the drill through the head, which is a, f a famous image from that. I had a T-shirt in high school of that image, which uh, I once had to turn inside out. <laughs> I was just gonna say, like, <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine walking into high school because that would have been right around the time when like columbine was happening i had into well i bought it at cult con and uh the day i met misty monday um <laughs> uh rotten cotton had very a, uh, very important day in your life yeah <laughs> rotten cotton had a booth at cult con 2000 uh and i got that there um yeah and it's also got people puking up their own intestines there's a rain of maggots it's a, it's a crazy movie. Um, so then in 1981, we have The Black Cat, which uh, 
I really like. It has very little to do with either of the Black Cat movies that we talked about a few episodes ago. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, I mean, how many movies are there that are called the Black Cat? It's got to be hundreds, right? Well, a couple of years ago, Arrow Video put out a Blu-ray called Edgar Allan Poe's Two Black Cats, and it had Lucio Fulci's The Black Cat, and the other one was directed by Sergio Martino. Yeah, they're just, I mean... <laughs> and I like how the credits for Fulci's film, in, in the opening credits it says, freely adapted from the Edgar Allan Poe story. And yes, but it has more to do with the story than either of the universal ones we talked about with Bela Lugosi. Um, that's actually... If anybody ever uh, has any issues with uh, Vincenzo Tomasi's work as editor of several Fulci films, um, you should point them to the Black Cat and be like, clearly this guy knows what he's doing and any issues you might have with the editing has more to do with what's going on in the film itself and what is causing these like spatial relationships to break down. Because basically Fulci, he shot like all these like deaths and everything. And then he shot all these images of this black cat running around and going to different places. And basically just handed Tomasi like this pile of footage and was like, the audience needs to get that the black cat is causing all this stuff to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's very impressive. Like, I, I think I like it more than a lot of other people. I just, something about it. And it, it also has a great score by Pino DiNaggio. Right. Okay. I'm remembering that. Yeah. This is the movie where the cat is actually killing people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah. So, and then they follow that up with the beyond. Which we'll talk about in depth in a few minutes. Uh, and then after that, The House by the Cemetery. And uh, then The New York Ripper, which we both enjoy a lot. It was very controversial in its day. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm actually a pretty big fan of that movie. I've seen it a couple of times. Um. And then that period of his career really ends in 1982. Now, all these movies that I've been talking about the past few minutes, from zombie to manhattan baby that's 1980 1979 to 1982 it was a very productive period for him manhattan baby sort of ends that period between zombie and manhattan baby yeah yeah um that's considered by many the high point of his career um from like a financial view it definitely was um and you know years before most like American audiences knew anything about his Jalo films from the the seventies, this is basically what his reputation was built on. Right. Um, these really gory, violent films in the early eighties. Manhattan Baby, I'm not a huge fan of. Um, after that, he it gets weird. There's some weird stuff to follow. You've got his uh, sort of sword and sandal epic, uh, Conquest. Which is a crazy movie. I don't know. Have you seen that one? No. All right. Um, and then there's uh, the new Gladiators, which is basically when they made the Running Man, they had to have been aware of the new Gladiators. It's like this reality show where people are forced to fight to the death against each other. But it was made in 1983, so like, yeah, Fulci knew what was coming. <laughs> And then after there was Murder Rock, which we've done an episode on Murder Rock. That's that's a, an underrated film. Yeah, and I just wanted to make a note about uh, Murder Rock, the, specifically our episode on it. Um, in preparation <laughs> for this episode, 
I went back and listened to that because I didn't want to overlap with things that we may have discussed in that about, you know, the history of Lucio Fulci and stuff. And I quickly realized, well, not so quickly, after about an hour and a half of listening to this episode, and we had not mentioned Murder Rock at all. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so I just wanted to say, because, I, I, you know, there may be some new listeners uh, listening to the show, um, because we kind of, we took a hiatus for a few years, and then we came back, and um, now we're on iTunes and all this kind of stuff. If you do go back and listen to those older episodes, yeah, I, I, I did want to sort of offer an apology of, of sorts for yeah. sort of rambling on a bit too too long in in, uh, in places, not really getting to the point. A lot, uh, of, a lot of personal stuff. A lot of personal stuff, yeah, that just really didn't need to be in there. A lot of like local-type stuff that anybody who doesn't live near Glens Falls, New York, has no idea what we would have been talking about. Yeah, so... Um... It is kind of weird going back, so it's, you know, it's like, because I would like to say, like, oh, you know, we're talking about Fulci, yeah, go back and listen to our Murder Rock episode. Um, But unfortunately, we spend about maybe half an hour to 40 minutes talking about that movie um, at the end, and we kind of (laughs) just briefly sort of stumble through that movie, so we didn't really do, like, a a, a big sort of deep dive into it. Um, So we're kind of making up for that now. Yeah. And I say, if you really want to kind of get to know us you know episode one it's worth a listen our origin episode we just talk a little bit about about our backgrounds but then you know this part from our episode on george romero on i think i'm proud of what we've been doing yeah yeah and there are i mean there are some good there's there are some good episodes uh in in the old run you just got a mind for that gold yeah you gotta just sort of (laughs) sit through us talking about i don't know other nonsense so um anyway so yeah, so Murder Rock, uh, and then The Devil's Honey, which is his like erotic thriller. Um, I it recently was released on Blu-ray. I'm actually kind of excited about that because I have a very poor quality DVD with Japanese subtitles on it, and it's it's just it's a rough movie to watch, and I, I'm I'm looking forward to finally seeing like this pristine restored version. What's it called? The uh, The Devil's Honey. The Devil's Honey. Um, and I just, I remember watching it for my uh, senior paper in college in, in my room in my apartment once and my roommate came in and I'm just sitting there watching this like kind of weird transfer DVD with these like Asian subtitles on it. And this guy is like, sort of like filleting a woman with a saxophone (laughs) and I'm just like, nothing. What? Like... (laughs) This is an awkward moment for him to walk in. I didn't really know much about that movie going in, so I didn't even know what to expect. But uh, it's, it's a very sexual film. <laughs> um, you know, and then you've got Enigma, which is sort of his take on Carrie, sort of. Um, and Fulci was having some health issues in the 80s. Um... He did a film, Zombie 3, which, you know, is the long-awaited follow-up to Zombie 2, which he sort of, like, at one point, he's just like, yeah, I'm done, and he walked off, and the producers felt it wasn't a full movie yet, so they had uh, Bruno Mattei, a.k.a. Vincent Dawn, come in to finish it and add a lot of stuff. And then there was a lot of TV work. Um, and it's, it's sometimes hard watching some of these later films, because you can see 
what he was going for, but he did not always have the resources to achieve his goals. Of his later films, I would say um, Cat in the Brain is worth watching just because you get to see Lucio Fulci playing a film director named Lucio Fulci struggling to make a horror movie while dealing with a lot of issues. And it's this is a very interesting, like, meta giallo. Um, and also, uh, I'm kind of a fan of Demonia. His sort of, like, supernatural killer nun movie from 1990. Um, but his, unfortunately, his, you know, his career did sort of peter out. And then in the... In the 90s, he was starting to get recognized a little. He began to realize that the, there was this generation of, like, Fangoria readers who had sort of grown up with his movies, finding them on VHS, often, like, bootlegged. And he he did attend one of the Fangoria Weekend of Horrors conventions. And he got to meet a lot of, uh, of his fans and sign a lot of stuff and just see how loved he was. Um, and then just a few months later, he died. The same day, March 13th, 1996, as the acclaimed Polish director Krzysztof Kieślowski, who that obituary got a lot more headlines at the time because this was just a couple years after Kieślowski had been up for um, an Oscar for his film Red. So, yeah. So if somebody is looking to sort of take a cursory exploration of his filmography, which films would you recommend? Just because I, I, I'm always hesitant to recommend somebody's like best films to start with, because then it's all, you feel like, oh, well, nothing's going to be better than this, so it's going to be weird to watch the rest. I would say for the Jalo films, Lizard and a Woman's Skin is a great place to start. It's a very, very good film. Um with a very, very great lead performance from Florinda Balkan, who's also amazing in Don't Torture a Duckling. Um, and then as far as, like, the the gory films, I would say probably Zombie. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think Zombie <laughs> is definitely uh, a must. I've always found City of the Living Dead to be a great party film. There were many times when I'd have people in my basement that I would show them City of the Living Dead. Um... It, depending on the person you're trying to introduce Fulci to, uh, it's like, because like I I would you, love you to, always got to make a simple question difficult. I'm because like the New York Ripper I think is a really great movie to show somebody, but like you know it's not it's not a date movie. Don't show like a girl you're trying to impress in the New York Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a rather disturbing movie. Yeah, yeah very a very sexually violent movie. Um, if you're trying to introduce a child to Fulci, I'd go for White Fang. I think White Fang is actually a very well-made family film, but is very violent. But family-appropriate violence. <laughs> when I think of family-appropriate violence, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, Home Alone. Okay, but with more blood, and like if somebody gets like hits their head on a table or something, there might be like some chunks coming out of them. Okay, okay. Yeah, family stuff. Yeah, so it's not quite as uh, family-friendly as, like, the early 90s, like, was it Ethan Hawke, White Fang, that Disney put out? Um, 
which when I purchased the Fulci film on VHS, they for some reason sent that too. I got these two VHS copies of two different White Fangs for like nine dollars. Well, that's uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, um. Well, how about the Beyond? Would you recommend the Beyond? I mean, I'd recommend the Beyond. I just I just don't think you'd, you'd want to start with it. Gotcha. Because it's one of those um, high points. Like, um, I guess if somebody's only gonna watch one Lucio Fulci film ever, it would either be Don't Torture a Duckling or The Beyond, depending on who they are. I gotta say, um, I really, really enjoyed The Beyond. And it might be my favorite Fulci film that I've seen. Why? I really, I I like the supernatural uh, aspect of it. Hmm. Which is something that I. Well, I've seen House by the Cemetery. Do you like that more than I do? You think? I enjoyed it, but it's it wasn't one that I that really left much of an impression on me. The dubbing of the child actor doesn't help. Yeah. Um, and I haven't seen uh, City of the Dead. Of oh, the Living. Dead. Of the Living Dead. That surprises me because I've watched that movie with many people that you're friends with. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it. So that's one that I definitely have to see. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Something about The Beyond really just uh, ticked a lot of uh, boxes for me that just made that just for me personally, just stuff that I really enjoy. I like the kind of strange, mysterious nature of trying to figure out just what is going on in this uh in this house and in the history of it and yeah, the supernatural stuff i like how things are left unsaid it's a very ambiguous film and i like um i mean okay i gotta say the ending of this movie i just absolutely love yeah it's got to be like, I don't know, it's like one of my favorite endings to a movie. I just, the whole end sequence, I just really am like, <laughs> I, I just love it. From when they, um, they, they're in the hospital, and they're fighting through the zombies. And that sequence, I'm kind of like, I'm a little mixed on. It, it's kind of, uh, I get frustrated because there's the, there's the doctor guy, and he's got a gun. And at one point, he shoots one of them in the head. They keep doing this thing where he'll shoot a zombie in the chest, and it keeps coming for- towards you. And then you shoot it again in the stomach, and it doesn't go down. And then he shoots him in the head, and he falls down and dies. Yeah. And you think from then on, like, oh, okay, that's how you defeat him. You gotta shoot him in the head. And then it's like, next zombie comes along, he shoots him in the chest. Doesn't work. Shoots him in the chest again. Doesn't work. And then he shoots him in the head. And he goes down. And I'm just like, just shoot him in the head. And maybe you could say like he's missing when he's when he's trying to shoot him in the head. Yeah, I mean, he's not the... he's not like a, a professional sniper or anything. He's a doctor. But he's not standing that far away <laughs> from true. them. That's true. He's, <laughs> he's not he's not aiming for the head. Clearly. Yeah, he's. It looks like he's. So like that becomes frustrating. And it's a rather long sequence that I'm kind of just like, just shoot him in the head, man. Come on. <laughs> he just keeps shooting him in the chest. But anyway, so they make it through this hospital, and then they they finally. Uh, they're they're all boxed boxed in. They have nowhere to go. They open up a door. They go down the spiral staircase, 
and realized that somehow, magically, supernaturally, they've been transported back to this uh, this this hotel that the main, our main character uh, Liza is uh, has inherited this hotel and she's fixing it up. And now they're they're back in the basement, which is the the, the place where a lot of this uh, this stuff is has come from. It's the it's the place where at the beginning of the movie we have this prologue uh, where we see for, back in the nineteen twenties um, a painter Schweik Schweik uh, painter. He has he has the book of Avon and uh, he's you know and all the townspeople come and uh, they. Apparently, and it, I like how in the prologue we don't even really know much of what's going on there. Where it's like, okay, so presumably things in this town have gotten out of hand mm. somehow. There's been other deaths. There's been other instances of zombies or uh, or monsters or something has been going on, and all the townspeople seem to think that it's this painter is the cause of it. So they storm this hotel, they grab him. They drag him down to the basement. They crucify him to the wall. And, uh, I mean, and that's a very vicious, brutal sequence at the beginning where they're whipping him with chains and we're seeing the, you know, his skin split open. and It's very evocative of um, the most brutal scene in Don't Torture a Duckling. Yes. The chain whipping. Yes. Um and then they uh, they douse him with what looks like some sort of uh, molten lead or molten molten it's metal. It's a lime, I think. Quick lime. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, which I don't is... know if that's something they say. It's just something like when reading about the movie, writers will just be like, "Oh, then they take the quick lime." Well, because it's hard to it's hard to tell because the whole opening prologue is done in sepia tone, so you can't really you can't actually see what it what the color of it is. You know, which I think may have helped identify it which is odd because watching it in the late 90s on vhs it it was just in regular color uh which was not the original intention they wanted it sepia but for whatever reason when anchor bay put their vhs out that was not the case yeah so they you know they douse him with this molten lime or whatever and it essentially melts his head it's really brutal uh death scene and um so it all goes down in this basement, and then, you know, throughout the movie, various people go down to the basement and have uh, unhappy things happen to them there. So at the end of the movie, our two main characters, Liza, and what's the doctor's name? I don't even know. Just the He's just the, the doctor guy. Well, he's not a U.S. Senator, senator named John McCain. He is a doctor named John McCabe. That's right. John and it's kind McCabe, of like yeah. Steve Banning in The Mummy's Hand. Yeah. <laughs> Or it's yeah, so yeah, Steve McKay or no, not Steve, John McCabe. Uh, yeah, they find themselves mysteriously transported back to the basement in the hotel, and I I really like their acting in the end. They're terrified. Yeah, I, you can really feel how scared they are and how this the like you know they get down at the bottom of the stairs and then when they realize that they're in the basement they're like, it feels like. It's like a, a bad dream yeah. that they just desperately want to wake up from. And they have no choice but to walk forward. And, you know, and there's this uh, 
strange mist starts filling the basement and they walk forward and they find themselves in this, uh, this land that is evocative to me of, uh, who was it who, who, the famous artist, is it Dure? Who, uh, created all those, um, uh, they were like, uh, wood carvings, right? Or sketchings of, um, Dante's Inferno. Um, they weren't wood carvings. They were frescoes. Okay. And he, I feel like he did, um, uh, the Val Luton film Isle of the Dead, I feel like was inspired by a DeRay image. I don't know. I don't remember what they were called. But they, they walk into this landscape and if that's what it feels like to me is like, it's, it's one of those DeRay images of one of the rings of hell. And, um, it's also, it's the painting that the, the painter, uh, had, had done yeah. at the beginning of the movie. And, um, I love just the the way that that looks just like the it's very eerie and like unsettling how there are these bodies that are sort of like half cover half buried in the ground and they look they you know they're looking around and the way that the music comes in at the end the way that they look at each other like and when they realize that the exit is gone and that they're just they're just trapped in this place and then we see that their eyes have gone pale like uh emily's emily's uh yeah the blind woman's <clears throat> and uh the young girl uh just the, the 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 way that they play the way that they acted in that scene the, the looks on their faces with the music it just um i don't know I, I really really dig it i like the way i like just you know the moment of realizing like oh shit like we're trapped in hell <laughs> and we've become a part of this thing it's uh it's really terrifying and um it makes sense to think about like paintings it might remind you of like because i mean they are inside of a painting yeah basically and uh, you mentioned deray which makes perfect sense and to me i always thought of uh I think his name was Anselm Kiefer, who did paintings that were inspired by um, the Holocaust. Mm. And I can't think... I'm not much for, like, art history, right. I guess. Yeah, like, me, I don't, me neither. Yeah. I can't just call on, like, names and dates of, like, paintings and things like that. But, like, there are a few images that I would see... Um, like when I was working on my Fulci paper, I was like, going to school, I was taking other classes and I was taking like an art history class. I just remember seeing these images and be like, oh, that's like the basement and the beyond. Hmm. And, but, it, but it was inspired by like concentration camps. I can see that though. I mean, like with the way that the bodies are kind of like lined up, yeah. half buried, it feels and like those, it's, yeah. those extras basically, that's like drunks and homeless people. They gave a few bucks to lie down in the mud. Oh, really? Those are people. That those aren't props. Those are people there. That makes sense. Um, that and it's amazing to think of like the way that was achieved. That it's such an amazing image. Yeah, that oh, whole yeah. scene oh, yeah. is so evocative, and that great mist that's over the whole thing that was accidental. Um, the cinematographer uh, was looking at. The, I I don't remember the details of it. It's uh, they talk about it in the special features on on the Blu-ray. Um, they were looking at this other set 
from some other movie that was being taken down and they were like wait a minute if we just like put a bunch of like dirt in here and stuff and we can we can make it look the way we want to look and then it somehow it got wet there was moisture in there they weren't aware of and it made this like little mist and he was like oh so he went in with like hoses and stuff trying to get like just the right amount of mist and i think he, he got it yeah no, like it wasn't even anything he planned for he's like oh if i do this we'll get this great fog effect mm-hmm. and i like i like the, the that landscape that you know that painted landscape um because it's 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 an image of hell that isn't like it's not like the fiery sort of bloody vision of hell that it's just like you're, to think about it's just like nothingness you're it's asleep a, it's forever like a cold like... dead uh barren landscape but it's 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 hellish in that like clearly they're like they're these bodies who you know it's like who laid them there where did they come from who, like yeah. where is this place and what is going on um and like were they just like john and liza they showed up there accidentally one day and then eventually they just wasted away and laid down yeah like is that what that's what just what happens to you you just wind up in this in this place and or you end up like emily and are stuck between the two planes of existence yeah and emily is uh is interesting we only we see her in the prologue in uh presumably in the 20s i mean yeah. it's, it, she, it's, it, she's intercut reading from the book of avon as we're watching um the painter what's his name Schwitz? spike spike uh be be killed um she's reading from the book and uh and but she, presumably it's in the same time period, and I love the moment when when it goes to to color when she's reading the book and all of a sudden these this fire springs up and suddenly we just like snap to color, and the music comes in and it's really great. Um, it's like a it's like a nightmarish version of the Wizard of Oz or something. <laughs> um, but we don't really know what happens to her. She shows up later in modern day, which is 1981. Um, and she's blind and uh, she has her dog uh, Richard Richie Dickie 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 that's it attack Dickie attack attack Dickie attack <laughs> yes Dickie um, but you know we don't know exactly what happened to her uh, she tries to warn Liza about the hotel and you know that she should just leave from here and that this is a bad place this is you know there's a gate of hell fyi in the basement you should know about and you should probably just get the hell out of here um and then later we see what look it's like all of the the, the zombies come to essentially take her back to hell is yeah. what i sort of infer from it's that. all the i mean schweik is there Joe the plumber. Joe the is plumber there. is there, yeah. Um, the uh, Arthur is Arthur, there. Arthur, yeah. Martha is there too, I assume. Arthur and Martha. Yeah, it's a very confusing name because <laughs> they, that, that that kind of bothers me. In the commentary, David Warbeck and Catherine McCall, they both mention how, like, you know, the script by Dardano Sacchetti, like he, you know, writing in Italian, he's like, oh yeah, Marta and Arturo. Those are just two separate names. Martha. But then Arturo. translated to English, you've got Arthur and Martha. Yeah. And they have to be yelling like, Martha, Arthur. Yeah. Like, and they're just... always like, and it's not, yeah, it's, it's one thing to have a movie where 
you have two unrelated characters that are, you know, in separate parts of the movie or whatever. But these are just like the two housekeepers of the movie, and they just have like the same name essentially. Yeah. It gets kind of confusing. Um, but yeah, like they're all there. So they're the recently deceased. They're the recently damned, I guess you could say. Um, and they come and surround uh, Elizabeth or Emily. I'm sorry. Uh, and she says, "No, I don't. I I I don't want to go back. You know." You can't take me back. So presumably, she came from that hellscape. Yeah. Because we see uh, John and Liza, the way that their eyes turn in the end, into the same way that Emily's is. Um, You can kind of somehow surmise that somehow she was able to escape from there. Or maybe she was sent back. I don't really know. And we don't need to know, but it's, uh, what do you make of the scene where, uh, Emily runs out of the hotel as Liza watches and her seeing eye dog goes running after her. And it's a moment that Liza then plays in her mind over and over again on repeat. Cause she's sort of inferring like, Oh, does she... Are we supposed to assume, like, oh, Emily isn't actually blind? Like, she can actually see for herself? She's able to run across the floor and, like, hit all the stairs and run away without the seeing eye dog? Or she's just very familiar with that place. Like, she knows that hotel. Um, the way I was, upon rewatching it, the way she was running, um, I was noticing how the way she holds her arms when running, it's not the way that somebody would normally run your arms would generally go up and down with your legs as you're running. Her arms stay by her side as if, like a blind person, she knows a general way, but if she has her arms like out at all, she might hit something she doesn't know exactly where it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed like such an odd way to be holding her arms. It had to have been a conscious choice. Unless she's just like Molly Shannon or Raquel Welch on that Seinfeld episode where they won't move their arms when they're dancing. Or, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, and then the way she's, like, playing it over and over, it's almost like she's... She knows something is wrong, and she's just replaying it, looking for clues. Like, right. something... It's like... And this is something that I knew would have to come up at some point in this episode, and I, I hate to do it to you, Lucho, but this is something you see in a lot of... Dario Argento films where a character is replaying a moment looking for like what did I miss there's something off here what is it Mm -hmm. and that Argento comparison that's something that dogged Fulci his whole career well his whole career but like post 1970 (laughs) um and I mean in this film you've got the dog attack uh which you know if you've seen Suspiria there's a blind person and they're attacked by their own seeing eye dog. And then there's, um, the follow-up to Suspiria was Inferno, in which there's this hotel yeah. that's on top of... And that that's like, that's what this movie really reminds me of. Yeah, Inferno, Inferno was, that was just a year before yeah. the Beyond. 
and maybe i don't know I, i'm i'm a huge fan of inferno as well so maybe that's why i really like the beyond it just like it it hits that i don't know it hits i think that the beyond is me. better than inferno i inferno was one that for years was underrated it's been getting its due lately because it was always like oh well it's no suspiria i had the benefit of seeing inferno years before i ever saw suspiria and nothing to compare it to uh which was nice uh but they're they're both very good films um i rewatched just the ending of inferno today just to see that i'm not even gonna say what it is there's this great moment this great trick shot moment in it um because there's a character in inferno who is uh um it's a supporting character but very vital to the ending and she's played by um veronica lazar i guess you'd say the name who appears as martha in the beyond Oh no, kidding! Okay. She is. I didn't. I didn't realize. Should I that. do any spoilers for Inferno? Just as far as identity of a character, she is uh, Mother Tenebrarum in Inferno. One of the three mothers. That's or right. you may call us death. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love oh, that man. Mario Bava set that shot up. Oh really? Yeah, he did. It was, that was towards the end of his life. He just did some effects for Inferno. Wow, he did the whole underwater room scene. He uh, set that up. Man, I love the underwater room. Scene. Yeah, that was that was Baba. So, so cool. Um, but anyway, yeah. So she appears as Martha in the Beyond, who's sort of there's something sinister about Martha. Yeah, yeah. She she's like, I built this walkway just for you, Joe, and then he follows the walkway to his doom, and she. I never really, for some reason, until today, like I watched the movie, you know what proctors with the score last week and a few days before that i had rewatched it on the blu-ray and then with the commentary but for some reason today when just skipping through to certain moments just to refresh my memory i never realized like just how fucking hot martha is i i, I thought about it as being like you know, i'm like oh you know if you because she she has like a greasy kind of like yeah. unwashed look to her yeah you which i guess it. that's what's doing it for you it's but, like a uh... wet mom and her scared stupid <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, well, I was th- I was looking at her thinking like, you know, oh, you know, if you kind of like, you know, if she sort of like took a shower and you, she kind of like, you know, smiled a little <laughs> bit more, then yeah, she'd probably be very Oh, you're attractive. one of those guys. You always want girls to smile. You'd be pretty if you smiled more often. You <laughs> sexist <laughs> pig. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of you're those You're part guys. of the problem. <laughs> well, she's just so, as you say, she has this sinister quality to her. And she's just generally angry and kind of stomping around a lot of the times and just yeah. like sort of, you know. Which when I look back on women I've had like crushes on throughout my life, that those are ways to describe them. This like straggly, scowling girl. <laughs> well, I'm sorry if it, that, it doesn't do, that, that that's not what does it for me, so. Um. <laughs> so there's a tangent. Um. Were you about to talk more in depth about the scene with Emily and her dog? Because <laughs> you started to say about how she was in... Oh, no, no, well, you were not, I, I when was... she was running out of the hotel. Right, yeah, okay, I'm yeah. Because when she's running out of the hotel, because it's like, it is that thing of, like, you know, what you were describing with, like, the Argento thing of, like, you know, go, the, the, the person going over in their mind, in their memory, like, what is it? I'm missing something. The movie draws attention to that moment, and I'm wondering, like, what am I supposed to be sort of yeah. inferring from that? What is the thing that I'm missing? Is it that she's not actually blind? Because clearly she is. Like when she's home alone, 
and these zombies show up. She doesn't. She clearly doesn't see them. Yeah. So like, I don't really know what it is that we're missing. Or. All right. So there's a scene where. Doctor John, um, like Doctor John McCabe, <laughs> he. You know, Eliza uh, has told him about meeting Emily, and he's like, "I don't think there's an Emily." Uh, he goes to this house where Emily allegedly is and has been meeting with Liza and it's this like rundown overgrown house and he breaks into it and he looks around and there's no way anybody has been living there making that basically abandoned looking place a home yeah in years but then later we see it and it's just like we saw it earlier and Emily's in there and everything and it's it's like it's this other dimension this yeah. other plane that she's on yeah and it's like when she runs out of the hotel and we see it in a weird loop and Liza seems to be seeing it in a loop. I'm wondering if it is her memory or if it's just like she's passing through this portal from one uh, dimension to another. Yes. And it's because, just kind of shuddering for yes, her. Yes, because one of the things we see is like when. Yeah, because one of the moments in one of the shots in her memory loop of trying to figure it out is. The the front yard empty. Mm. It's as if she ran out of the house and then disappeared. So maybe that's what it is like that. It is just like what happened where did they go wait a minute they were here and then they just disappeared and maybe the actual images of them running out of the house like isn't exactly like real it's sort of just like her mind trying to figure out what happened to them like they ran out of the house and just vanished and yeah into this other pocket world wherever this other plane that she exists on yeah, I can dig that. And one of the great things about this film is that any of the theories that we were just talking through, any of them could work depending on just how you feel about it. Because it is ambiguous with all this stuff. Yeah. Um, how great was Emily's introduction? Oh, man. One of the best... Uh... I mean, as far as... <laughs> you can't really introduce a character in a more just like grand way than that. It's kind of like in Stagecoach when we first see John Wayne's character and there's like this like long shot and the camera just like pushes right in on it. Yeah. yeah it just goes right up into his face. But um, the, uh, it's just, probably not what they were thinking at the time. I don't know if anybody else has ever thought that before, but that's, uh, but just whatever that location is, wherever they shot that with just this like empty sort of, barren highway yeah. that just goes, it's just straight, you know, it's just perfectly straight nothing else anywhere it's just like there's no trees there's just blue what looks like sky or ocean i don't in my mind like, i don't even remember what's what is the environment around that highway. Yeah, it's like a bridge you don't really see what's under the bridge what's either side of the bridge it's somewhere in new orleans um and i just uh my birthday was last week and i got the criterion bbs box set on blu-ray oh yeah which has easy rider in it which mm-hmm. You know, again, we did an episode on Easy Rider years ago. I don't know if you want to go back and listen to that one. <laughs> um, and I was kind of like, I, I haven't rewatched Easy Rider yet, but I was watching some of the special features. I was kind of looking out for like, oh, I wonder if they shot in any of the same places as Easy Rider when they were in New Orleans. Um, and they do drive over a bridge there, but I don't, they didn't, they definitely didn't shoot it in the same way yeah. as they do in the Beyond, but it could be the same bridge. Yeah, so Liza's driving down the highway, no, no cars anywhere else, she's just free free going down the, the bridge and then we see and it right standing right in the middle of the road 
is Emily with her dog. And yeah, we just push right up to her. And it's just a beautiful image. Yeah. One thing Easy Rider kind of made me remember in the context of the beyond is that, you know, there's the great scene in Easy Rider at the end where they're tripping and they're in the cemetery. And, you know, all the crypts are above ground. And um, because in New Orleans, if you dig a few feet down, you're in the water. So all the cemeteries and everything are above ground in New Orleans. Mm. And it just like the idea that the Seven Doors Hotel would even have a basement. I mean, the basement is flooded and it's like, well, why would you even put a basement there? That's a good point. Yeah. um, Like, I don't really have much more to say about that, but it's just like, yeah, yeah. it's like, yeah, it's something that shouldn't even really be in the first place. And like, so of course it's going to be flooded. So it's not like, it's not like a mistake in the filmmaker's part. If it was, the basement wouldn't be flooded. It would be fine. Mm Mm-hmm. But it is funny because Liza, when, when Plumber Joe shows up and Liza's explaining to him, like she's like, I don't know, like, there's no, like, no water's coming out of the tap, but the basement's flooded. You explain it to me. <laughs> it's like, well, uh, you have a basement in New Orleans. Maybe that's a problem. <laughs> Joe the Plumber is interesting. Um, he shows up in his vehicle, and this is something I didn't notice until I had the Blu-ray. His license plate? Yeah. He's apparently a very religious fellow. Yeah. Um, and it's there in recent years, so I guess, I don't think anybody cares about him anymore, but a few years ago, um, there was this figure in pop culture. They just called him Joe the plumber. He aligned himself somehow with Sarah Palin and John McCain. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, this I feel like he was sort of similar to the character in the movie. He was just a very like kind of right wing kind of religious guy, and he just... well, the thing with Joe the Plumber, I don't know. It's like he shows up. The first thing we see of him, if you notice it, is the license plate. Yeah, and it says it, there isn't even any like numbers or letters on it, like an actual. It's just it's just an image of the cross, and it says like you know like Jesus saves or whatever. Yeah, um, and then he steps out of the car, and I mean he's. He kind of looks like Jesus. He's got, like, the beard and, like, the long hair. He's got, like, the, you know... I don't know. He's got... He's rocking sort of a Jesus look. And it's his death that sort of... I mean, Schweik comes out of, of the water later. Where, I mean, like he every... was literally crucified to the wall. Yeah. And, I mean, he goes out... His name is Joe the Plumber. I don't know if that has anything to do with, like, you know, Jesus being a carpenter. But it's sort of, like, just like that kind of, like work well it's that sort of you know i mean it's that sort of like yeah, it's like labor, a, a craft yeah craftsmanship um, work um, like the guy who falls off the scaffolding before joe the plumber even shows up yeah that sort of that moment sort of draws first blood i guess yeah so i don't know what the what the connection is but joe goes he's trying to he, he knocks down the the brick wall trying to get to the heart of where this uh this leak is coming from and uh He's like Me- meets his end at the at the hand of uh, Schweik in what is uh well is it Schweik because it's no it's not it's just a it's a there's a hand that flies out of the darkness yeah, in one don't... of the great jump scares of the movie because yeah, Schweik comes he up from the water up from the a surface later. yeah, yeah. Really, yeah. Which I was surprised to learn, like, the people at the end, that's the actual actor who played Schweik that they had submerged there. 
I, I, that that that's just the way that like we do things when we, when we make movies <laughs> and stuff. It's like it's this full method acting there. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I don't know what that Jesus connection is there with uh, with Joe the plumber and going down to the to the crucifixion spot, and then he uh, gets his eye gouged out, which is a thing with Falchi, it seems. Yeah. And this is really the first time that I've really noticed it because there there's a there's there's a famous scene in in Zombie where which I thought you were going to talk about earlier when you ended up talking about the shark. Well, cuz for I a was, long time I was kind of saving it for the whole yeah, I, okay. eyeball discussion because like there's a famous scene in Zombie where this woman uh has her eye impaled by a giant wooden splinter and it's you know if you have any sort of like queasiness about eyeballs it's pretty painful to watch and what's amazing about it is especially if it's one like like it was for me one of the first italian horror movies you see as the splinter gets closer and closer to the eye you keep thinking well they're not gonna do it yeah and then oh no this is this is what they do yeah it's going it's going and you're just like oh my lord um so i you know there's that famous scene but then watching the beyond, it's like every time a person dies, they're getting their eye fucked up in some way. Where it's like Joe the plumber gets his eye gouged out by just like a finger or a thumb, right? Yeah. And that's pretty gnarly looking. And Martha with the nail. And then Martha gets it. She gets her head pushed in uh, to a nail that's sticking out of the wall by the zombie form of Joe the plumber. And then Martin. Um, here, yeah, her head goes into the nail and her eyeball pops out. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, what's his name? Martin? Martin. He, he, <laughs> there's another name that just kind of rolls in with Martha. And he's at the library. Yeah. <laughs> he climbs up and he's looking for the schematic or the, 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 yeah, the schematics of the, of the hotel. He falls off of a ladder, um, somewhat mysteriously. And as soon as he hits the ground, all these tarantulas come crawling out of nowhere, and we, and they come and they crawl up onto uh, onto him, um, and they start just tearing into every piece of his face, including his including eyes. his eye. Yeah, like we see that the those nasty little mandibles of that tarantula just like grab the eye and every excruciating little detail. It's and such like, a long scene. Yeah, and it's I love it. It's uh. Yeah, I mean, God, that, that that whole sequence has got to go on for like well over five minutes. And like, this is something in in my Fulci paper talking about his Jalo films. I would talk about the uh, like the murder set pieces being like musical numbers in a musical. Um, how now in those they would often be more like chase sequences than these later gore films, but you would just have the narrative going along in a normal narrative fashion, <laughs> right. and, and then, then it like, would just stop. All right. Let's hit pause for a second. Yeah. Now let's, you know, yeah, let's just take like five minutes and just watch these tarantulas yeah. do this thing. And it almost becomes like a music video. Because with these gore films, like the, the his post-Jalo films, that he would do that with the gore effects. And it's just... And people, not so much now, but at the time would give give him and other filmmakers like shit for that. But it's like, well, that, how come you can sing and dance when all this other stuff is going on and these we can't just linger on these horrific moments of uh the tarantulas 
eating his eyes and his lips and everything. It's it's and like when you're watching a porno and like you know you're what you're you're seeing the story of like you know the the boyfriend and girlfriend doing doing their thing and then it's like you know oh here's like the boyfriend's going to cheat on the girlfriend and then we gotta like pause the story and wait for like seven yeah. minutes while we just watch them screw. And that's how there's like on YouTube you can watch all these um these all these pornos without the porn. Like, um, so just the, yeah, just the story. Like, I really like the uh, the Scooby Doo triple X parody, um, where it was it's it's a porn version of Scooby Doo, and on YouTube it's like maybe half an hour, but mm-hmm. it's you know it's an actual like feature length like adult film, and it's hilarious because you know that every time there's a cut, right? Oh, there's a hardcore sex scene in there. <laughs> yeah. But watching these actors just like do their like like shaggy and velma impressions and everything like in between sexy it it can can be fun but uh watching like that like a a a horror film with like any gore and stuff cut out uh Mm -hmm. which for a while was how people had to watch movies like this uh it would be kind of frustrating but i mean it is one of those things where it's like people would argue because you were saying like well why can musicals you know pause for a musical number and i would say you know for a lot of musicals the songs are a part of like the plot they they you know they they speak to the motivations of the characters where they're oftentimes you know singing about what's going on inside their heart you know and in these films this uh, the violence i mean it shows horrific fates that await you which all the focus on the ocular violence i think is there so that at the end when they go blind when they're in the beyond if Mm -hmm. you will like i i feel like it sets that up and also the the whole fact that there's like this weird skewed timeline of everything it would make sense to have these extended moments or repeated moments like when mm-hmm. Emily's running out because I don't know how long this movie takes as far as like the the real world like the, is it over the course of a week right. a couple of days someone dies has an autopsy has a funeral and then shows up there's their zombie version is back at the hotel later but it seems like Oh yeah, that was this afternoon. Yeah. Um Yeah, I just think like you could take like the tarantula scene. Yeah. From from a from a sort of like cynical perspective and say like you could just cut that scene out and it wouldn't change the plot at all. And it's like, well, that's true. Yeah. But like movies aren't all about plot. Right. This there's... is the thing that like frustrates me to no end with a lot of like McKee with a lot of uh criticism. Where it's just like, if you take that tarantula scene out, it's like, yeah, you could understand what's going on in the story, but it's like, that is just an intrinsic part of the DNA of what the Beyond is. It's like, you, it'd be like taking out the, I don't know, any any of the other scenes. It's just like, you don't need it to understand what's going on, but it's it's that's just like a part of what, it's a part of the tapestry it's a part of the yeah. painting of this thing, you know? It's like you don't need, for the purposes of narrative, and even the way people are feeling, at no point in the movie Singing in the Rain do you need the scene <laughs> where Gene Kelly sings in the rain. You could cut that sequence. That's true, yeah. yeah. And it does not affect the plot. It doesn't even affect motivation or anything. But I would hate that, because that's a great scene in a great movie. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there is a sequence in Singing in the Rain that... It's completely extraneous. You can maybe lose, and 
the whole big climactic musical sequence I'm assuming you're talking about. Like the 15 minute, uh, is it dancing ca- or the singing cavalier or whatever it is. Yeah, where he go, where Gene Kelly goes in and he pitches. He's like, I got this great uh, idea for a for a musical. It's all about a guy who comes to the big city. He's yeah. looking to break in, and then we go into what he's talking about. He's like, gotta dance. But then, what is that movie without that sequence? I, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, great. You've got a nice little story there. Filmmaking should be more than storytelling. Absolutely, that's that's the point. Is that it's like. You know, if you just wanted the plot, go read the Wikipedia breakdown of the story. Yeah. You know? Like, films are more than just the plot. It's about the mood and the atmosphere and being locked into a space and a moment and uh, and experiencing it for what it is. Instead of, like, just being like, oh, well, this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And like, oh, well, we don't need to actually see this because it doesn't... You still get that this happens and then this happens. So. 2001 A Space Odyssey would be 15 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, a, you know, it's like, do we really need the Blue Danube? No. Cut it out. Um, it's... Where did we get down to this? I want to talk about Joe the Plumber. Oh, well, we were talking about the um, the ocular violence. Yes, okay, okay. yeah. Yeah, just a little bit more on this. So is this a thing? Because I've seen, you know, it, 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 I've seen it in Zombie, the wooden splinter, and obviously in The Beyond, it's all over the place. Is this a thing that's pervasive in any of his other films? There's a lot of bleeding eyes in City of the Living Dead. Um... In Una Salaltra, aka Perversion Story, there's um, nothing happens to eyes, but there are like eye images in the set design that have to do with with like implications of what people are seeing in other people, and like there is a lot of eye stuff throughout. Mm-hmm. But particularly, you would say that like the eye stuff in the Beyond is more than just like a fascination that Fulci has otherwise like it's specific to this movie that it's trying to there is like a something about the eyes in this movie there's more of a focus on it uh off the top of my head i would say yes and i like where you were going before where it's where it is like the idea of this blind woman like you you go to this this hell or whatever and it like turns you blind but are they actually blind or are they just sort of like seeing things differently now i think they're blind in the sense that they're not seeing with their eyes but they might be seeing with a different sense of consciousness they have that where they don't need eyes right and it's like we live in this world and yeah because it is just i mean these zombies are just relentlessly attacking these people's eyes and faces you know i mean and there's the at the acid uh death which you know the acid just being porn all over the face but you could say it's being poured right on directly onto her eyes yeah and then when the little girl gets shot in the head and she just has like this huge like her head almost just completely explodes she's got this huge gaping wound 
and the top of her head, which just like her eyes are gone. Yeah. Because it's the top half of her head. She apparently was um, played by an older actress. Not older as an elderly. I mean, it's not. She was playing a child, but she was um, maybe in her late teens or early 20s or something. And Fulci was not always a friendly person. He was usually not a friendly person. And he would often pick out one person to just, like, give shit to all the time. And I guess that was her on the set because she would show up um, under the influence of drugs often. He was a very anti-drug person. Hmm. And that's not... I mean, if somebody shows up to a set yeah, and they're in an altered <laughs> state, I mean, you have a reason to... Yeah, be like, what? why are you, you know, high or why are you drunk? Yeah, or what? but he just had, like, zero tolerance for it. And... Huh. I thought that maybe it, would, it was... You know his attempt to try to get her into this mindset because things don't go well for her. No, <laughs> her you know parents are both horribly killed. Um. I like. <laughs> there's a scene when we first meet. I think it's when we first meet him, uh, Arthur, and he's just being creepy and sweaty in this room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Liza is like, Arthur, what are you doing? Like, oh. And he says something, keys. and he says something like, "I heard a car pull up. Was it Joe?" And yeah. it's the idea that like people know Joe. People are waiting for Joe. Yeah. And like Martha made sure to clear a path for Joe. Mm-hmm. The idea that Joe the plumber is showing up there—it's like this preordained event. That's people are waiting for Joe, and the Martha and Arthur. <laughs> it's so weird to say. Martha, uh, like they. Liza says they came with the hotel. Right. And John, he says, I know everybody around here, which that's impressive. New Orleans is a big town. Um, he's like, I've never heard of these people before. Yeah. And it's like, they're maybe they're like Emily. And, they, and they're like, yeah. And like you said, you know, Martha made the path for Joe. And then Joe is the one who kills Martha. Yeah. So maybe it was some sort of like twisted vengeance or something like you, you but, did this to me. But it's like, it's almost like maybe they're working for whatever spirit is controlling the beyond i don't know if it's schweik or if schweik like or them could just a- be this innocent or whatever yeah but nothing it's like the idea that like if you're serving good you might get some reward but if you're serving evil there really is no reward there might be a momentary reward but you're fucked anyway you've damned yourself so like even if she was consciously like, oh, if I get Joe the plumber to go down there and let whatever it is out and open the gate, uh, I'll get some reward. But no, she just gets a nail through her skull and her eyeball. They're, just, they're damned people, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty good theory. Not my own. I would have to credit the author Stephen Thrower for putting that idea in my head. Uh, he's, if you're ever looking for any information about Lucio Fulci, anything Stephen Thrower has written is the place to start, especially his book Beyond Terror, which is a mammoth... It's this huge book. Um, it goes into so many different facets of his career. It came out in the late 90s, and I'm not sure of the date. It's pretty much any day now there's going to be a new edition of it, which is going to be even bigger. And I'm still not done reading the old version yet, but I kind of want the new one. Because he, he said in the past, like, almost 20 years, he's gotten a chance to talk to so many more people and a chance to see so many more of Fulci's films that weren't available to him. So, Awesome. One thing that he 
brings up in his book when talking about the beyond is something that uh, I never really thought of. And unfortunately, it's one of those things that once it's said, you can't like not think about it in certain moments. And um, he's talking about the he makes some sort of pun. I want to say like the anal isis of it, like analysis, but anal. Uh, and it's when Joe the plumber goes out of the basement and there's just like this dirty, mucky brown hole in the wall that he basically just starts picking away at. <laughs> um, I'm not even going to say anymore. Maybe, but I will, I guess. And he's just like practically just like fisting this hole and like this, you know, hand comes out of it and kills him. And then Schweike rises up from the water i think the term thrower uses is like a floating turd uh which and these you know like the zombies in zombie these are not attractive looking undead um these are just gross looking brown mucky dead people um and i mean it's there i don't know if you want to but i mean i don't know i feel like that's kind of a stretch to say like oh this is you know all about he's not saying it's all about he's just saying here's a thing that i noticed right and it might it's it's just there if you want to pay attention to it i guess Mm -hmm. yeah i guess uh it's one of those things that like i could see the i can see the the association yeah but is that sort of association intentional on Fulci's part? Probably not, but that doesn't, that not. doesn't matter because that, he's... Uh, yeah, that doesn't... Yeah. yeah. And I agree that, like, a lot of times people will um, either disparage things because it's like... Just just shoot down theories and ideas about things just because it's like, well, that wasn't the intention. That yeah. wasn't the original intention. And it's like, well... You know, because for any piece of art, you, you bring with it what what is with you, you know? You bring yourself... In your perspective to a piece of art and you take out what you sort of see so you know that in that way it is valid i just i don't know it's um well then there's also um the horrific idea of um like conflating <laughs> conflating the anal with the oral where um like later you see like brown muck coming from his mouth and stuff where that's that's not where stuff like that's supposed to be coming from. I don't know. These are these are just ideas floating around out there. I'm right, just, I'm just yeah. saying. I, I just think like you know it says more about uh, Stephen Thrower. If, yeah, it says more about him than because uh, he's like, well, here's my analysis because he does this for every movie. Yeah. He's like, well, where's the anal in this movie? And like, here's my analysis. But he he also he worded it more intelligently than I'm trying to translate it right, now of in this course, conversation. Of course, yeah. And he is he is a really great writer, and it's like. Sort of like how if you're looking for facts on Mario Bava or writings on Bava, you'd go to like some anything Tim Lucas ever wrote. Stephen Thrower would be that for Lucio Fulci, I'd say. Gotcha. Um, yeah, we keep talking about zombies and stuff, and this is often referred to as a zombie movie, and it is because it's got zombies in it. Yeah. But it's not necessarily like, all right, so it is a zombie movie because it has zombies. But it's almost like it's a movie that just happens to have zombies in it. They are one of many things 
that are like the horrific element. Like there's also the tarantulas. Yeah, and like it, these tarantulas just come out of nowhere. Yeah, I and mean it's the possession of the dog. Yeah, the possession is. And it's like immediately when he hits the ground, it's just like these tarantulas just come out of nowhere. Yeah, and start well, like him. like the lightning bolt or whatever it was that first startled him and made him fall down. Right. Uh, so it's, it's like clearly it's just yeah these are all supernatural things. And the, the yeah. way that these zombies kind of like Plumber Joe like they buried him. There was a funeral. And then all of a sudden he's in the bathtub in the hotel. Yeah. Well, like, apparently all doors lead back to the hotel as we went at the end. Maybe Plumber Joe just went through the plumbing. Yeah. And just came up into the bathtub. <laughs> yeah, maybe they, maybe they made the mistake of burying him in New Orleans. Yeah, and he ended up him, underwater. Yeah, and yeah just... exactly. Um, but yeah, the that final zombie sequence where they're in the hospital and you were talking about the, the not shooting in the head. Yeah, the frustrations stuff. of not shooting in the head. Like, that was a scene that was not in the original draft of the screenplay. That was something that the producer, Fabrizio De Angelis, um, you know, after the, the great success of Zombie 2, was like, well, let's get some zombies in here because in the wake of that film, as well as the, you know, the success of Dawn of the Dead that already happened, there, in the early 80s, there were all these really... I'm going to say sleazy, but I don't want that to imply that they're all bad. Mm-hmm. Sleazy can be great. Um, there are all these like sleazy Italian zombie films. And they're making uh, a good chunk of change. So Fabrizio DeAngelis is like, let's put some more zombie stuff in the beyond. And so that's how you get that whole climactic hospital sequence. Where they're just like, okay, the dead are back. And they're coming for us. Um, yeah, and those are much more traditional-looking zombies, where they're kind of people with, like... And you can sort of see where their injuries are, like, oh, this guy got, like, you know, cut and cut across the face. Yeah. Or like, you know, they're not, like, the just disgustingly rotted, fulci zombies. Yeah, and they're in a hospital, so it's, like, it's a place where people go to die. Well, I mean, that's not usually the intention, but that's what happens in my experience. Um, <laughs> sorry to terrify anybody. <laughs> um... But, like, so, yeah, they're the, the freshly dead, sort of. Um, there's actually this one moment that I never noticed until I was reading the book Splintered Visions by Troy Howarth, which is, like, it's another book that focuses just on Fulci's films, but I, um, having not read the entire book, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say anything too bad, but I'd put it below Stephen Thrower's writing. But anyway... He points out this moment in the Beyond that I never noticed before, and now I can't not notice it, where when they're getting on the elevator in the hospital, um, and John goes to reload his gun, he takes a bullet and he puts it in the barrel as if it was like a musket, and he loads it that way, and it was just David Warbeck, the actor, just joking, and you can actually see uh, Liza's face, Catriona McCall's face, she, at the very last moment before the elevator door closes, she breaks and la- laughs a bit, looking at him loading the gun that way. Because they just didn't think, like, well, this is just us fucking around. They're not going to use this shot. And they use that shot. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, getting back to what I was saying earlier about, um, like, the comparisons with Argento. Uh, in the end, I don't think stuff like that matters. Because regardless of where Fulci might have been, and not just Fulci, but I mean his screenwriter and uh, cinematographer, producer, every, everybody working together, they were definitely aware of Argento's films. But 
regardless of where they were getting these ideas, it's the way they execute them in the context of their films. And even Argento's films, Italian genre cinema in general, very little is original. It's just they do things in an original manner. Yeah, I mean, like you were saying before, I mean, like, Fulci's zombie was just a direct, like, I mean, you could say ripoff of Dawn of the Dead, just, like, trying yeah. to capitalize on something that's hot at the moment. Yeah. And, like, the entire giallo genre is, like, which we've talked about in the past, just, like, how there are so many similarities, which is what makes it its own genre. Like, yeah. all of those, all of those hallmarks. So it's, like, yeah, you can say that, like, they are derivative of each other, um, but that doesn't, like you say, it's a... Uh, is how you do it in, in, within the context of your own work. And, like, Fulci would get defensive about that um, in his lifetime, and he would talk about how, well, when Argento started out with Bird with the Crystal Plumage, he was just ripping off the movie that I wrote, Sweet Body of Deborah, which, that's not a movie anybody ever talks about. I don't know much about it, aside from, oh, that's that movie Fulci keeps claiming he worked on, but nobody's verified. <laughs> um... I don't know, everybody's ripping everybody off. But also, first, in the late 90s, becoming aware of Argento and Fulci, it was always, Argento's great, and Fulci's this hack who got lucky every now and then. That was like this general idea, and it really is such a VHS idea. It's a very pre-widescreen, like being able to see restored films and the compositions and everything. Fulci visually, he has a lot of great traits, um, like his use of rack focus is always very um, effective. Uh, that's one of his more common things, the way he would use the handheld camera, which I got to say, the Beyond at Proctor's, that was the first time I'd ever seen one of those films on the big screen. And the handheld camera <laughs> kind of was a little dizzying. Really? I am I used to notice. seeing it on the small screen. Like the first scene where Liza is walking with Martin and they're talking about the plan, her plans for the hotel. Huh. I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> I didn't notice at all. Um, but, yeah, like, and his focus on eyes and his use of handheld, when cropped in, like, 133 to 1 for VHS, it doesn't always work out that well. His films, The Black Cat and Manhattan Baby, reviews of them would be like, well, here's a movie full of people's, like, the bridges of people's noses. I have no idea what's going on. And it's like, yeah, that's not his fault. Right. You just, you can't see the context of like. Yeah. And, and kind of what you're saying, like at the, at that time when like not all of either of those filmmakers, uh, filmographies were available. Even, yeah. Where it's like, okay, so with Fulci, like, yeah, you've got zombie and maybe like zombie three, because like that's a zombie movie easily marketable in America. Yeah. So you'll put zombie three out there. Let's also put, like, Murder Rock. That's pretty, you know, let's throw that one out there. So, like, <laughs> let those movies stand, to, to, and we'll compare it to Suspiria and Phenomena and Tenebrae. Yeah. You know? Or, and even if, even those movies, I mean, Tenebrae was insane, which, and it was, like, I don't know, it was a lot shorter, and Phenomena was called Creepers. That was, like, 30 minutes shorter than Phenomena. Yeah. So, so even, even he didn't look just, out. But... Yeah, they just had, and then then put it in full screen and, you know. Yeah. Let's judge the films, you know. <laughs> so that is one of the good things that, like, we are kind of living in a, uh, I guess, somewhat of a golden age of, like, accessibility 
Yeah. You know, where it is like, I, mean, I think we talked about this, I can't remember which episode recently, but like you have these companies like Arrow and Shout Factory. Blue Underground. Just like being able to just dig into these depths and be like, oh, hey, like here's these films that have never had a release over here. Let's actually put them out. And um, even filmmakers, I mean, as much as, you know, his worth was disputed often, like full, people knew who Fulci was. But in recent years, there are certain filmmakers like Sergio Martino. Well, I don't even know if I've ever actually had a conversation with anybody about Sergio Martino. But, like, growing up, I knew about the movie Torso. And that was pretty much it. And then in recent years, there's all these other films, these westerns, these gangster films. You know, like any other genre of filmmaker from right. Italy. He was doing everything. Yeah. And he had these great giallo films, these great horror films. And... Um, he's starting to get some attention paid to him, which is really good. And uh, I'm just wondering, like, how many more things are there we don't even have any clue about now that we'll find out about in the years to come. Yeah, because, I mean, (laughs) that's what's fun about, like, exploring film history is, like, there are no shortage of films. Like, there is always something new to discover and learn about and see. And, like, uh, yeah, can't see everything, unfortunately. You don't know what, like, like there could very well be movies out there that are, like, just as good, if not better, than so many of the classics that we hold today as being sort of top of the, of the, you know, A-list. Yeah. I would also like to point out that I'm not in any way trying to denigrate the quality of Argento's films. I'm just saying that, like, Fulci got a bad rap, Mm -hmm. but, but, like, Argento in general is pretty great however if argento and fulci had both died at the same time argento would probably be safer in his reputation because the films that he's made since 1996 there's uh you know right yeah i mean (laughs) when i think of argento i don't even really you just ignore everything after that yeah the Stendhal Syndrome was 96. That's a really, really great film. Um, and he's still going. But what, good for him. What's he What's he done? Uh, uh, I, think, I know the Dracula 3D was the last thing that I saw. I believe that out. was the last thing he's done that's been released. I don't know what he's been working on since then. Um, Which I have yet to see Dracula 3D. Have you Have you seen that? I haven't because I, it's called Dracula 3D, so I want to see it in 3D. Yeah, I mean, when... <laughs> Yeah, how do you how do we see in three D? There's like a two D Blu-ray, but I mean, like if they have if a movie is called three D, <laughs> there are three D Blu-rays out there. Like, why not just like do that? Well, it's like you need a three D Blu-ray player. See, I have, and you need a three D TV. I have a Blu-ray that claims that you don't need a three D TV to watch it. Like, I don't know. But I haven't tried that's it a, yet. But. That's a discussion for a whole yeah, other time. Yeah, that's just uh, Anything more on The Beyond? Probably as soon as I get home tonight, I'll think about ten more things. But at this moment, I think we're, we're pretty good. What's the next Lucio Fulci film that Max is going to see? Um, City of the Living Dead. Cool. I feel like that's a must yeah. on my list. Um, it's a little more episodic and loosely constructed than the beyond 
and the beyond is very episodic and loosely constructed. <laughs> yeah. In a wonderful way. All right, so this wraps up a uh, a long line of uh, films that we've that we've been watching lately for the show. Um, we've been in in squarely in horror territory since we since we came back. Yeah, between was... <laughs> George Romero, and then we dove right into the uh, Universal horror stuff, and then we spent October uh, looking at other sort Spooky of stuffs. <laughs> yeah. <there> was... <laughs> Generally, sort of a random assortment of uh, horror films. Someone asked me earlier today, like, oh, you have a podcast, what's it about? And I just said, like, well, movies. And they're like, oh, what kind of movies? And I'm like, oh, any kind of movies. And then I started naming movies that we've been doing. They're all horror movies. Yeah, she's yeah. like, oh, you do a horror movie podcast. Like, well, lately. Yeah. So what are we doing next episode? Not a horror movie. Oh. We're going to do uh, a Jerry Lewis movie. Uh, he passed away um, recently. And um, there was a lot of other stuff going on, so we didn't really have time to... You know, we were in the middle of our Universal month, I believe, so it would have been weird to just stop that and do Jerry Lewis. Uh, we were able to work Toby Hooper into our October yeah. theme, but I don't know. Um, now, you've never seen a Jerry Lewis movie, besides I... The King of Comedy? Yeah, I've only seen uh, yeah uh, Scorsese's King of Comedy in which he plays. But I, I don't know if I call that a Jerry Lewis. Movie. I mean, it's a movie with Jerry Lewis. In right. It. Um, but no, yeah. So I've never seen any of his like classics or, or anything, anything what, of what he's really known for. Oh. Jerry Lewis is a, is a more or less a complete mystery to me. I like that. I feel like that's a good way to go in. You, you don't have too many preconceived notions. Nope. I know his sort of like, uh, Hey lady character. Which I guess is generally that's his shtick. I guess. Okay. I know his shtick. Generally, what it is, you know. All right. Nerdy guy. But that's it. I don't know. Yeah. All I don't right. really know. Well, for next week we will be watching nineteen films. Oh Jesus! No, we, we won't. Um, we will be watching one film, uh, starring and directed by Jerry Lewis. And at this moment, I am torn between two of them. I was thinking The Nutty Professor. But now you really want to watch something else? The Ladies' Man. Um, the Nutty Professor is definitely his most celebrated film of all the, films of all the ones that he's directed. Um, so that's kind of why I don't want to do it. But at the same time, I think we should, but we shouldn't. You know, I, I, I have a feeling that there may be a lot of people out there listening, like me, who you know kind of know of jerry lewis never really given it the time or attention or even really thought from my perspective i am i want to start with like you know what we you know what's what's his best movie you know what's the okay what's top of the pile all right if, and if that's the nutty professor and because that's like i know i've heard of the nutty professor all right and you've seen the eddie murphy nutty professor from the 90s yes yes i have right. <laughs> so i'm generally okay so we'll do we'll do the nutty professor okay it makes sense i don't know i was trying to i don't know what i was trying to be hip maybe yeah and i think for a lot of other people uh you know 
And then a professor may be more accessible to people, maybe more it, it, just to watch it, you know, maybe not, you know, accessible as, as a movie or whatever, but just like may have more opportunities to actually see it because you can probably find it relatively easily on DVD or Blu-ray. It yeah, may, it's on may Blu-ray. Maybe be on uh, one of these streaming sites. Yeah, it's, it's on Blu-ray. It's in a DVD set with a bunch of other Jerry Lewis movies. Um, yeah, I don't know about streaming. Okay, yeah, I mean, so I'm saying, you know, you can rent it uh, for about $3 on most streaming services. Well, it's on YouTube, but you got to pay. Yeah. So, you know. Opportunity. So I'm excited to uh, see something new. This is this is a whole new area that I haven't really uh, you know delved into at all. Um, I really wanted to pick like a Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis movie, but there's it's hard to find one that's really representative of like all of them. You'd kind of just have to watch like bits and pieces of a bunch of them, right? Because that's what he built his reputation on before he started making his own films. But we'll go into all that next time. So yeah, you will be my guide through the world of Jerry Lewis. Yes, I will be. Next episode, I will be Sacagawea. Yeah, and you will be Lewis and Clark. Yes. That was her, right? She was with them. <laughs> yeah, Sacagawea. Okay, cool. Yeah, right. she yeah she led uh, Lewis and Clark. All right, cool. That's me then. All right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we sign off, I just wanted to um bring up the fact that we have a uh, Facebook page, which we never really talk about on the show. That's true. We never prom- we never do any sort of promotion. Um, and, yeah. I, and I think <laughs> sort of what I mentioned at the beginning of the show is, you know, I think maybe there are some new listeners and stuff. I would encourage you to go uh, like us on Facebook, follow us, and, uh, you know, if you want us to talk about a specific movie, you should let us know. Because we would be more than happy to uh, listen to your suggestions. And maybe not even like um, like a movie you want to hear like a whole episode uh, based around. But if you have any uh, general queries about like, oh, I've always wondered about this thing or recommendations for this thing or anything like that, you know, we, we can address those in future episodes. Yeah, totally. More questions about or comments about any of the movies that we've discussed in the past like the beyond or or any of our older episodes um yeah feel free to reach out to us on facebook or on uh on podbean which is where we are hosted um you can follow us there or you know subscribe to any other uh places that you find your podcasts um we also have an email address talkinmoviespod at gmail.com you can email us there But, but mostly just please like us yeah please <laughs> alright so thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talking Movies I'm Max I'm Tim and we will see you next time